Welcome to Hustle and Thrive, a working culture podcast for conversations on living, working, and thriving in arts and culture. My name is Yomi John, marketing coordinator at Working Culture and host and producer of this podcast. And I'm Stephanie Draker, co-host and program manager at Working Culture, and we're bringing you the part three of our series on equity and inclusion in the arts sector, developed in partnership with Curated Leadership. And I'm Shaliza Jamal. I'm an equity and inclusion coach, educator, and the founder of Curated Leadership. Our wonderful guest today is Cyrus Marcus Ware. Cyrus is a Vanier scholar, a visual artist, community activist, co-founder of BLM Canada, researcher, youth advocate, educator, and most recently became Dr. Ware after completing a thesis defense exploring disability justice, abolition, and portraiture. Congratulations, Dr. Ware. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Cyrus. And congratulations on defending your PhD. So glad you could join us for part two of our series with Curated Leadership. So for our listeners, we will be talking about intersections of accessibility and equity. Um, Accessibility for all is very critical because when people's identities no longer hinder them from gaining access to opportunities, then we will know that we have reached a state of universal equity. And we can't really get there without allies. And Cyrus is here to help us unpack that. Um, So picking up from where we left off in part one of this series, we talked about inclusion and diversity and in the same spirit of getting clarity on both concepts i wanted to find out how you would define accessibility what does the term accessibility mean to you cyrus and how is it being used or misused in community and the arts sector i think when i when i think of the word accessibility i think of it in the broadest sense of the word um, I think of it uh, as a as a beginning place. It's a place where we start, uh, where we we start to imagine, um, uh, you know, a future where disabled people have what they need uh, in order to survive and thrive. Where racialized people are considered inherently valuable. Where trans people get to live long enough to become elders. Like all of these things uh, become possible in the future when we begin to think about access in the present. Um, so access is really just the beginning. Uh, what we're moving towards uh, from access is something that I would like to think of as, as disability justice. So uh, sort of imagining a future world where uh, all of us get to make it, uh, you know, where we actually get to make it. Um, and I think that that's something that uh, that we're looking uh, to sort of head towards. So yes, that means that we uh, need to make sure that uh, racialized folks are getting opportunities in the arts. And yes, that means that we need to make sure that you know uh, theaters and art galleries and dance spaces are accessible to disabled, deaf and mad creators, producers, performers. Um, you know, we, that, that is true. You know, we have to make sure that uh, you know, trans people are able to enter into the arts and have their work supported. You know, all of those things are true. Uh, we need to make sure that we're creating uh, an open space, a space where those folks can can be able to come into a conversation 
education, but that must be just the beginning. We must move far beyond just opening the doors and making a space. We must move towards transforming the system that created the barriers in the first place. So, you know, rather than just uh, creating a ramp uh, over some stairs, why don't we uh, reimagine what the entrance of a building could look like in the beginning? Why don't we reimagine who we're, uh, you know, picturing coming into the space? Uh, we could t totally radically reimagine it and, and imagine something much better uh, much more beautiful for all of us. So uh, I'm very interested in thinking of accessibility as a starting place. Thank you, Cyrus. Um, that's, I completely agree with that being your point with saying that it's more than just the beginning and we should be looking towards um, transforming systems. Um, I guess, what about other, what about the ways that people misuse the term accessibility? Well, I think that, uh, you know, there are ways that we um, can can say that something is accessible and it, and it really isn't. Uh, it hasn't, there hasn't been an accessibility audit. There hasn't been, uh, you know, an actual engagement with disabled, deaf, or mad communities, you know, when there is this promise of accessibility that isn't met. That happens far too often. And I think what that does is that creates uh, you know, a break in trust with the community. Um, and uh, what we're trying to do, I think, as practitioners and as, as folks in the field, is we're trying to build trust with uh, community. Um, and, uh, you know, so we need to uh, really uh, come through with what we say when we say something is going to be more accessible. And when we say that we're creating accessible hiring practices, you know, what does that actually look like? How do we ensure you know that everybody is being able to to access the content and 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 shine you know through the process and be supported to thrive through the process so really thinking through uh, what we need to change um so i am i'm aware of the way that accessibility gets used uh and sometimes it it creates a situation where we're over promising and i think that we need to be really careful of that Cyrus, when you were talking about you know the idea of accessibility justice, it really reminded me of our first podcast where we talked about the difference between diversity and inclusion and equity and equality. And what I'm hearing you say is that, yes, we need equity. We need the fairness. We need the accommodations. But more than that, we need to, as I say, you know, step by step, break down that invisible fence towards justice. We, we are working towards equality, towards justice, and that by no means is it a final destination, but it is a journey and a process. And I really like the way that you said it has to have a reimagining or a sense of reimagining and transformation for us to really think about what it looks like. Because in my experience, I find that folks talk about justice, talk about equality, but really what they mean is something that's just diversity or something that is just, you know, a stopgap measure, which I will call like an equitable move, uh, whether it's, you know, putting pronouns on their email address or whether it's, you know, like you said, creating one rap. So um, that's really sticking with me about this idea of accessibility justice and reimagining spaces, places and policies and programs. So thank you for that. 
Thank you. And I mean, I, I, I think about the incredible, I mean, disability justice grows out of Black, Indigenous and POC communities. And it comes, you know, from folks who, you know, many of whom were artists, like people like Patty Byrne, people like Leroy Moore, you know, who were articulate, like, like Leah Lakshmi, Piepsina Samarasina, you know, who were saying, you know, uh, disability justice is intersectional. Disability justice is going to change the future. Disability justice is rooted in interdependence. You know, disability justice says all of us rise. You know, all of us are going to, you know, succeed together. <clears throat> so we have these incredible things that are coming out of, uh, uh, you know, largely queer and trans uh, BIPOC disabled communities. And it's so beautiful. And I'm so thankful for that, that inspiration. What I was really picking up on as, as Shaliza was chatting is um, we're a bit on the same wavelength. I was thinking back to the first podcast that we had recorded as well. Um, and I'm really glad that we started with um, looking kind of beyond just the definition of the terms and, and coming up with examples that provide a lot of context, because I think there's still a tendency to prioritize or meet, you know, legal requirements um, over really addressing uh, experience. So, you know, I, I still see a lot around removing barriers and a physical sense to create access, um, but that's not necessarily, you know, taking into account the full range and, and spectrum of access needs that individuals and groups may need to really engage with an organization in a meaningful way and vice versa. Um, and, and, and it's funny that you mentioned the, the ramp example, Cyrus, because we, um, uh, you know, we actually worked with another um, disability consultant and arts advocate uh, who developed a blog series for us. And one of the, the blogs was actually titled, So You Built a Ramp. Now yeah. what? <laughs> so, you know, it's not enough just to focus on physical barriers or look at things as, as silos um, because it doesn't take into account, you know, full full access, you know, what that could look like for, you know, any given individual or group. Um, and we started to touch on it a bit um, as you were responding to Shaliza's um, earlier comment, um, but I'm wondering if you could share some other examples around how accessibility is important to reaching equity and how do these concepts sometimes intersect? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think there are moves in disability uh, organizing and disability activism, sorry, to really push us beyond access as the be all and end all, as you said earlier, there isn't an end point. There's rather a destiny, you know, a journey. And we have to continue to work um, to try to imagine uh, the most uh, diverse vi visitor, you know? So if we are imagining building uh, a building that has a ramp, well, that doesn't really necessarily help everybody. It helps people who can benefit from using a ramp. You know that 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 doesn't necessarily address you know all of the folks who are working in that organization who have learning disabilities who are being forced to read fifty-page documents and who aren't having accommodations around you know learning strategies and different learning modalities. You know it doesn't necessarily address the fact that the majority of the meetings that are happening in the space are taking place in English, thus, you know, completely shutting out deaf communities and making sure that people who are deaf or hard of hearing, whose main communication is ASL, you know, are not, not able to participate into the workplace. You know, so the ramp only is doing one thing. It's doing one particular thing, but it's not addressing all of the things that need to be addressed to make an accessible workplace. So we have to think about 
you know, Jan Derbyshire, who's this incredible theater maker uh, based out of Alberta, always talks about this idea that one size fits one. You know, so rather than trying to uh, imagine that we could, um, you know, just uh, do a checkbox and, you know, create a set of accommodations that would sort of work for uh, everybody in a one size fits all kind of way, rather we can, uh, you know, think of the unique people who are going to be coming to our door and then trying to meet uh, access needs uh, as they come. Uh, you know, this makes it much more of a flexible process that makes it much more of an exchange uh, between, uh, you know, the individual and the organization where you work together to try to meet access needs. So to me, this is where we're sort of, we should be sort of headed. And as we start to meet access needs and start to create, you know, transform our work environments so that, you know, we're creating the kinds of cultures where, you know, people who are neurodiverse are able to thrive, where blind people are able uh, you know, to succeed and be able to have what they need, you know, where deaf participants and deaf uh, staff are able to engage, uh, you know, in the workplace, where all of these things get to happen, you know, where we're creating these kind of workplaces that, frankly, will just be better workplaces because they'll have more of these voices at the table, you know, as we do this work to kind of create these environments, you know, we have to be sort of thinking, okay, and then what next, you know, and then what next and continuing to push further and continuing to push further because, you know, this is work that is never done. You know, this is not a checkbox list that you could just completely uh, be finished with. Uh, you know, one of the things that we need to do is, is sort of transform the way that human beings relate to each other. And uh, the way that we relate to each other uh, includes the way that we relate to each other in the workplace. I, I was just going to um, uh express my agreement with Cyrus what you were saying around that um, that cultivation uh, of the workplace and how that is such an important aspect of this you know especially because there's this um, again this tendency that I find with with organizations especially um, prioritizing access and accessibility and equity in terms of engaging audiences and building memberships and patronships um, rather than focusing on the workplace uh, and those structures as the foundation from which that kind of enge engagement can be built from. Um, so, so thank you for for bringing that up. So essential to remember, uh, you know, that it's well, whenever we're thinking about access, we can't only think about disabled people as audience members, you know, as receivers of the content. We are creators, we are designers, we are innovators, we are engineers, we are, you know, we are all of these things, uh, you know, and you, we have to be able to have access to, 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 to do our work. Absolutely. And you said so many important things that I want to touch on. You know, you said that in the beginning, the access also involves transgender, Black, Indigenous, and POC folks. So it's kind of about, it's also about identity. You talked about the non-visible uh, disabilities, uh, and that really rung true for me. You know, we have folks who have learning disabilities, who have anxiety, depression, and how are we really accommodating for their access? Um, and I really liked what you shared um, around the one size uh, just really fits one person. And it really made me think of this idea of empathy as you talked about building relationships and how do we cultivate this empathy to be responsive rather than reactive in our workplaces. And specifically, when we think about the arts and arts organization, how do you think that identity and our intersectionalities affect access to 
the services, resources, opportunities, or support that you were referring to in terms of accessible justice? Yeah, I think that one of the things that we're seeing is that, you know, the arts is a microcosm of the larger society. And so some of the social issues that we see writ large in the news and writ large, you know, in broader society in the social world are at play in the arts, which means that, yes, you know, there is white supremacy in the arts, you know, and that that's at play in who's getting the jobs and who's uh, getting access and who's being invited and who's, uh, you know, whose work is being considered inherently valuable, you know, that that is at play and that, that, yes, there is ableism and yes, there is systemic sanism and yes there is all of these things that are at play outside of the gallery walls outside of the theater walls outside of the dance hall space are taking place inside the 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 art space as well you know and so we i think rather than denying that we need to sort of meet it head on and say okay how do we uproot white supremacy in the arts how do we uproot it in our organizations how do we undo the ways that it's tied up in our processes, you know, and not just stop there, but also look at how ableism is playing, playing out in our workplaces, in our hiring practices, in our decision making, you know, look at who's on the board of directors in our organizations. Are they reflective of the diversity of the city that we're in? If not, what are we doing wrong and what do we need to change? You know, so really, uh, you know, deeply considering, um, deeply considering the kinds of systemic changes that need to happen. Uh, you know, this is a huge part of what needs to, to, to sort of take place in the arts. As we sort of try to imagine uh, a different world, we have to look uh, very critically uh, at <clears throat> the reality of what is happening. So denying that we have a problem in the arts, uh, we can't continue this. We have to address it head on. We have to say, let's uproot it. Let's undo it. Let's do the education that we need to do. Let's unlearn. Let's rebuild. Let's create an art sector in the future that is uh, thriving, where BIPOC uh, folks have uh, shows and have, uh, you know, support and have mentorship. You know, let's make sure that trans artists are able to have their work shown and collected. You know, let's make sure that Black artists get their work acquired into galleries and and, and collections, you know, in ways that aren't happening right now. Uh, And let's make sure that disability arts is on the table, you know, and is considered as a valuable contribution to the Canadian arts milieu. Let's make sure that all of these things are happening because we can and we will uh, do these kind of changes to make the world better in the future. Thank you. Yes. And it's just coming back, like everything you're saying is coming back to this idea of we need to transform the system. And, you know, one of my supervisors, Dr. Uh, George Day, talks about this, that, you know, inclusion isn't about bringing someone into a space that already exists. It's about creating a new space. And I think that's really resounding for me here because the old system isn't working. Like you said, it's it's fraught with white supremacy. It's fraught with capitalism and profit. And that is sort of an antithesis to what we want to do with uh, access and justice and um, all of that work. So that's really, um, you know, resounding and resonating for me about this idea that we have to do things differently. We have to break it all down, break down the structures in the system and really rebuild with access in mind um, and really provide these opportunities. So that's um, 
it's, it's, I'm really glad that you gave some concrete examples there that I, I've written down uh, and hoping that we can share with everyone on the podcast today. Absolutely. You've mentioned so many things, Cyrus, that are really, really critical to this conversation, especially I, I'm bringing up how this system needs to be changed. And I like how Shaliza also identified that um, inclusion is not just about um, bringing people to spaces that already exist, but about bringing people to new spaces. And this brings me to um, another concept of intersectionality, which we've already sort of touched on. It's another concept that is um, usually very misunderstood. And I mean, it was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, and it tends to be misused a lot in media, in different spaces, given that a lot of people tend to look at it as um, inclusion when there's it's a much bigger framework that needs to be properly looked into. Um, I personally understand it, but it for me, for a very long time, it was not, I was not defining it very correctly to reinforce its importance. And with that, I want to know how you would define and use intersectionality as a framework for attaining equity. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, intersectionality, um, although coined by Crenshaw in the early nineteen um, in nineteen nineties, you know, it, it it stems from this work by the Combahee River Collective from nineteen from nineteen seventies, and they said that if you make the world safer for those who are most marginalized, so, so for those who are at the intersections on the margins, um, you are necessarily making the world safer for uh, everyone. And so they said, if you make the world safer for Black women, you're necessarily making the world safer for everyone. And I would sort of update that in 2021 and say, you know, if we made the world safer for Black trans women with disabilities, we'd be making the world safer for everyone. And so Kimberly Crenshaw is taking this idea and saying, yes, it's because of the intersecting uh, uh, experiences and interlocking experiences of oppression, you know, that create these particular conditions that are only possible with those particular combinations of, say, racism and ableism or sexism and transphobia, you know, that those intersectional experiences of oppression, you know, shape uh, a particular experience for uh, community members and that it's, uh, you know, that, that we have to think through uh, these things, not as individual uh, siloed experiences, but rather things that are compounding, things that come together and become greater than the sum of their parts. So for Black women, for Black trans women with disabilities who experience transphobia and experience ableism and experience um, sexism and experience anti-Blackness, you know, and experience all of this combined together, it creates particular uh, experiences of harm, but also particular experiences of, you know, potentials of possibility. But it can create particular experiences of harm because of those compounding, um, um, you know, impacts of those interlocking oppressions. So, um, you know, it's really important to think through when we're talking about creating a space that is rooted in intersectionality, we're talking about creating a space that is safest for those who are at the, the intersections on the margins. We're doing the work of the Combahee River Collective, but we're also saying we're going to recognize that the experiences 
of racialization, the experiences of gender, the experiences of class, the experiences of disability, uh, of deaf communities, of madness, of all of these things, you know, that they uh, are, are something that we recognize, that we that we see um, as being, uh, you know, lived experiences that are valuable and that we're going to consider how they uh, intersect and connect for our community members uh, in order to make sure that we're making the space as safe as possible for those who are at the intersections. So I, you know, it's a, it's a complex term. It's a complex idea, but it really is rooted in this idea that we can do uh, our best work if we are making sure that we're rooting our idea of, of our ideal kind of participant, um, as somebody who may be least likely to access our services and try to make sure that we're creating an environment where those particular folks are able to thrive because we know that necessarily that will mean that we will have transformed the conditions enough that everybody else will also be thriving and and and, and surviving. Um, so that's my understanding of intersectionality and how I would sort of frame it. Yeah, I completely um, agree with that. And as you said, it's one of those things where um, people have to understand that when it's just like when people when when activists or advocates will say that when when black people are free, when black people black trans women with disability are free, then everyone is free. So once we can make sure that the people who are on the margins have the best experience, then every other person can definitely benefit from that. And that's the way we should be looking at things in all aspects of life, community, um, in the arts and in all um, sectors as well. So, so Cyrus, as I was hearing you speak about, you know, how to define intersectionality, it, it starts to bring up, um, you know, this concept of uh, allyship. Um, and, and how that is being used to help, uh, you know, address where where groups may be um, marginalized or oppressed or underserved. Um, and I mean, it's there. There are good examples. There are bad examples out there. Um, but you know, I, I'm starting to think. You know, in, in terms of how to really ensure that these processes and practices and attitudes um, towards using intersectionality as a framework um, take hold and become the standard. You know, what can those in, you know, with power and privilege do um, to become good allies or to, you know, really practice allyship in an effective way? Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about <clears throat> what it means to recognize that our liberation is tied up with each other. That in order for, you know, this idea that all boats can rise, you know, that our, that our, um, you know, as the, as the tide swells, we want to make sure that all boats rise, not just some of them, you know, that our, our liberation is necessarily tied up with each other's, you know, that in fact, uh, <clears throat> addressing these social issues will ensure that all of us will be so much freer, you know, than we currently are. So that is like sort of a foundational, uh, you know, underst you know, understanding uh, in in my life is this idea that it's sort of necessary necessary that we, uh, you know, do this kind of intersectional work, uh, not because uh, um, uh, because of pity, not because of guilt, not because of any of the sort of uh, emotional reasons that may, but rather because this is the right thing to do. 
uh, in this current moment, this is the right thing to do. This is the thing that is going to ensure uh, the, the most uh, survival for so many of us. So I've been um, really, uh, you know, sort of trying to think this through over the last 25 years. I've been an organizer and an activist for 25 years and have been trying to think through, well, what, you know, does it look like to be uh, in uh solidarity with each other? What does it look like to be tied to each other uh, because our liberation is connected to each other's? And so, you know, I think it moves beyond allyship. It moves beyond saying, I'm aligned with you. It moves much further beyond that. It says, in fact, I'm going to fight with you. I'm going to get in the I'm going to get in the gutter with you. I'm going to, you know, duke it out with you. I'm going to make sure um, that you survive this and that I survive this together. So it's almost like uh, accomplices or co-conspirators. I think that we're looking for more than allies. We're looking for people who are going to be down to doing actual action, uh, not just talk, uh, you know, action that will actually make and transform the conditions. So I think for people right now who are wondering, how do I be supportive in this moment? I think that we need to look beyond, um, you know, doing your own, I mean, we do, you need to do that too. Do your education, read your books, you know, do the book clubs, like do all of that kind of stuff that will make sure that you're, you're knowledgeable about the topic. But right now the time is to roll up your sleeves and to get involved. Uh, and uh, to get in the in the mess, you know, as Fannie Lou Hamer was famous of saying, you know, now is the time to get involved. Um, and so uh, I think uh, we need uh, all of the co-conspirators that we can get. Uh, you know, we are in the middle of a revolutionary moment. A revolution is not a one-time event. It's a process. Uh, the world is literally shifting beneath our feet. Uh, we are birthing a new world right now. And that is why it feels so topsy-turvy. Everything is changing. And then it's changing again, just like uh, all of the speculative fiction writers told us was going to happen in the future, that change was going to be the constant. Well, it's true. You know, we're in a world that is in the middle of a flux. It is going through a life cycle change and some new society is being birthed, one that will be much more just one that will be much fairer and one that will have more opportunities for all of us. So let's all get involved. You know, now is not the time to just sort of say, uh, you know, to stand on the sidelines and be aligned. Now is the time to, to get involved in the action. I love that, Cyrus. I absolutely love that. You know, I was thinking as well, there's so much controversy around this term ally because you see everyone using it, you know, especially with uh, Blackout Tuesday uh, last June. There were big organizations and individuals who'd never even, you know, uh, made any sort of commitment to allyship or access or justice, you know, putting up a black square. And so for me, I, I know that the term ally has a lot of controversy associated. And in my practice, I talk about performative versus productive allyship. You mentioned terms that I also use, right? Co-conspirator or accomplice and right? getting in the dirt, right? Getting in there, frontline taking action. And you started to mention some of these, uh, you know, examples, but what are some examples of ineffective allyship that we should avoid or be aware of and, um, you know, stay away from the ineffective allyship? <clears throat> yeah, the, th the way, the things that you would want to avoid would be uh, doing things that are um, in the name of communities that you're not actually connected to. 
So you want to make sure that you're taking leadership from those who are most affected by the issue. And you're actually, you know, doing the work that they are deeming is essential work right now. You know, um, there's this idea in disability justice communities of nothing about us without us, you know, so you need to root this work in, um, in our leadership, you know, um, and that that's essential. So uh, that's one uh, thing you want to make sure that the work that you're doing is not just, uh, you know, to uh, to be demonstrative, to to appear woke, uh, to uh, to get a a, a like on, on social media, but rather that it's connected to liberation. You know, we're talking about lives. I mean, this is literally about our survival on this planet, and so we need to. Um, <clears throat> do more than just um, uh, something that just demonstrates solidarity. We need to actually, as I say, sort of get involved. Uh, and then you want to make sure that you're seeking out opportunities to uh, to support and engage with work that's already happening. Uh, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. We can support the work that's been happening in communities for generations. You know, we can turn to elders in our community and say, what still needs doing? We can turn to young folks in the community and say, what are your new ideas? We can say, how can I support uh, and engage with your struggle? How can I, uh, you know, be, uh, be a warm body, be somebody who, you know, can kind of uh, get involved involved uh, what, when it needs to happen. And I think that, um, you know, you, you want to look out for opportunities where you're going to be able to take direction, as I say, from those who are most affected and look for that leadership. Um, because I think that you'll be more successful. You'll, you'll do work that's actually needed. Uh, you'll be able to actually support the work that's, uh, you know, happening in the communities that are most affected. And that's ultimately what we're, we're looking for. Absolutely. And so I'm hearing that it's about listening to community, really rooting ourselves in empathy and building those relationships with community to understand, as you were just saying, that our liberation is tied to one another. Um, and, you know, speaking not rather than speaking for a community, kind of sitting back and, and uh, seeing what the community needs from you and how you can support rather than, you know, being being the front line, being the, you know, the lead singer, being the backup singer, you know. Um, and so often I see that performative allyship is folks just want to jump up there and be that front stage actor, singer on the main stage. And that's really not what it's about. So uh, thank you for those great examples. I really appreciate that. Yeah. To also follow up on um, Shaliza's point about people um, being performative about allyship, um, just and you've also mentioned that allyship is beyond allyship, and it's about everyone being hands on deck for the revolution that's currently happening, um, and to avoid people from trying to use this um, use allyship as a way for like increasing their reputation or you know just just for their own personal glory what 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 does a good what does good allyship look specifically in the arts if you have like an exam if you have specific examples for the art sector and with the goal of equity and justice in mind what do you think good allyship is like in practice <clears throat> i think that it really is rooting you know being able to give up power um, and the examples where we've seen people uh, being willing to, you know, give up power um, and make space um, 
for voices that aren't always heard. Um, and you see artists do this sometimes. They'll, uh, you know, be invited for a show and be like, well, wait a minute, who else is in this? And then say, hold on a minute, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm not going to be involved unless, you know, you included trans women in the show or unless, what you know, or whatever. Um you know, situations in, in arts administration where, you know, power is abdicated to allow for Black leadership or to allow for Indigenous leadership, you know, in, in, in these legacy organizations where it's been white leadership exclusively for 100 years. You know, I, I've seen examples like that. So, you know, there are these moments where we're seeing people uh, giving up power and sort of shifting uh, their relationship. And, and, and I think that uh, that's sort of exciting uh, to watch. I'm looking at what's happening, um, you know, in places like the AGO, where you have folks like Julie Crooks, um, where you have um, Wanda Nanabush, where you have these folks in leadership positions, uh, you know, pushing for change uh, and, and, and really advocating, uh, you know, in dramatic ways. And I'm thinking, you know, how can more folks be aligned with those uh, individuals so that they're not doing this work in, in isolation and they're not uh, sort of uh, the lone uh, racialized voice uh, pushing for change in the institution. Um, so I've been uh, really interested in uh, thinking through uh, how you can kind of uh, best respond in the moment? How can you best get involved? And I think in the arts, a lot of it is uh, this question of power uh, and making sure that if you're somebody who is always being asked, that you're, you know, as somebody whose opinion is always being sought out, if your decision is always being made as the decision, you know, perhaps questioning that and thinking, you know, who else is missing from this conversation and re making sure that those voices are inserted. Yeah, absolutely. This also um, kind of reminds me of how when you when you bring up giving up power, it reminds me of how last year during the um uh, Blackout Tuesday, and then people were just only putting the Black posts on Instagram, but then, you know, marginalized communities, Black people were like, no, you don't just, you don't just put a Black post on your Instagram, you have to do more. And then, yeah, some people were doing more, but what they did was they would rather just step down from their positions and, like, leave the company. But I, I feel that, um, when you talk about giving up power, I think one of the best ways that a lot of places, organizations could have, the best things that they could have done is when you when you give up your power, rather than leaving the space, stay in the space and put somebody else who has more experience in that new in that position that you previously were in and use that opportunity to learn about solidarity rather than running away from the situation. Because that's one thing that I was also noticing that a lot of people were stepping down from their positions and leaving, but they weren't, uh, That leaving that position does not teach or fix the problem. It just, it just shows that people are running away from trying to actually really learn about solidarity and being, um, having um, hands on deck and helping out and just improving the course, the case of equity for everyone. I was also going to say to that point, Yomi, it's it's sort of like, you know, we talk about allyship being, you know, giving up your power or leveraging your power, bringing folks to the table, not only through mentorship, but through sponsorship. 
But then, you know, the example you're giving of people sort of leaving, it sort of, for me, seems like it reproduces that white supremacist cycle because it's not uh, bringing someone in that you have, you know, brought to the table and creating space. It could just be, well, I'm leaving. And uh, the same, you know, colonial systems can be reproducing themselves and someone who still thinks the same way I do or the way everyone else thinks could be reproduced and new new person doesn't mean new uh you know new thought process and transformation i think that's something that's really important and i i think i'm just leaning back into those first words um cyrus about this transformation of accessible justice and what would a world look like if we were to reimagine it where we're thinking responsively rather than reactively where we're considering all of the different identities that we bring to the table and most specifically as you said for the 21st century that identity of a black trans woman with disabilities and how can we program with the identities the intersecting identities in mind to work towards accessible justice in a meaningful way more than just a ramp as you said Steph so that's given me so much food for thought. Thank you so much. We, we've we covered everything that we wanted to, to discuss. Um, and we're happy that you were here. You helped us unpack this conversation that we wanted to have for a while now. So, um, I mean, this was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Great. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for this great conversation. Thank you. Well, uh, I thanks for the for the chance to be on this, and I look forward to hearing it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Working Culture. It's hosted by Yomi John, featuring co-hosts from the sector, and edited by Santiago Bidoya. If you like our episodes, we want to hear your comments, and please subscribe. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And for more hustle and thrive check out our website at creativeworksconference.com. Join us again.